The year is 1982. The place, the Boston Marathon, where a gutsy, relatively unknown underdog took on the renowned champion Alberto Salazar. They ran so closely together the final nine miles that they'd monitor one another by watching the other's shadow on the steaming hot asphalt. The race represented not only one of the most exciting marathons in Boston history, but also a climax to each man's career. The depths to which each had to go in the final miles took such a toll that neither one of them ever ran as well again. Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, recorded from the Catalyst Ranch. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and today's guest is Dick Beardsley, the underdog who pushed the champion and himself further than either had ever gone. His story is captured in one of the greatest running books ever written, Duel in the Sun by John Brandt. From his difficult upbringing to his struggles with chemical addiction that eventually led to his arrest and, of course, reliving the Duel in the Sun, you are going to love this special episode to commemorate the 2022 Boston Marathon. If you haven't yet tapped into it, there, there's a link in the description to access what we call the Catalyst 5. It's a real quick, it's about a 30-second read, but it's a highlight each week of five tips, tricks, or turbo boosts that I've discovered along the way that might help you improve your either personal, professional, or both aspects of your life. If you'd like to join the thousands of people who are already receiving it, all you have to do is click the link, add your email, you're good to go. And of course, if it's not giving you that spark that you expect, it's a one-click unsubscribe. As always, if you have any questions about bringing best-in-class coaching to your organization, pursuing your own certification as a coach, or anything else coaching-related, please reach out. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. We'll set up a time to connect. Now, it's time to be a catalyst with running legend Dick Beardsley on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dick Beardsley, it is a pleasure. I, I love, 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 love the book about you. It's one of the very few books that I've read multiple times. That's a rarity for me, but oh my goodness, this Duel in the Sun, is, it, it's got everything. So thank you for joining us. Super excited about this. Well, thank you, Brad, for having me on. I'm very excited about it too. And it, it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, in a month and a half, it'll be 40 years 40. since... Uh, <sighs> 40 since we, me and Alberto Salazar had the, what they call the duel in the sun. And I can, I can remember it like it happened this morning. Wow. Wow. There was a, a lot to it. I think I would have wanted to put it out of my mind. I, I want to touch a little bit first on the Guinness Book of World Records that you're in for. You, and I'm not anywhere near your atmosphere of quality, but I've run plenty of marathons, done 11 Ironmans, that kind of stuff. So I, I know that world and you're the only person to run 13 consecutive personal best times in the marathon. Now, folks listening, let me clarify this a little bit. We're not talking about somebody that went from five hour marathon down to three hours. He, he, he started at 247 and then gradually went down to 208 in the race against Salazar that we're going to be talking about. My friend, that is unbelievable consistency at such an elite level. How? Like, talk us through this. How did that happen? <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up, Brad, because uh, I didn't even know there was such a category. In fact, my best <laughs> friend from college, Mike Dunlap, he called me. This is a number of years ago and says, Beards, you're in the you're in the Guinness World <laughs> Record. Go for what? Well, then he told me and, you know, it wasn't something like I set out to do. It just happened that. Each marathon I ran, I ran my first one, the Pablo Nurmi Marathon in the little town of Hurley, Wisconsin, back in 1977. I ran 247, and uh, I swore I'd never run another when I was 21 <laughs> We all <years> did. <laughs> right. And, um, and then I ran another one a few months later, and after the second one, I really swore I'd never run another one. And it just kind of happened. And, you know, when I look back now, the closest – it ever came to almost not extending for 13 was uh, I ran the Houston marathon in 1981, January of 1981. I ran, I finished second uh, to Bill Rogers. I ran two twelve forty eight. Well, then three weeks later, I was invited over to the Beppu Onita International Marathon in Japan. And it's their oldest, most prestigious marathon. It's like the Boston Marathon over here. So I went over there and I finished third to a couple of uh, a couple of twin brothers from Japan. And I ran 2.12.41. Oh, 
<laughs> so it just, but again, it wasn't like you weren't setting out to went it. out to run a marathon. No, but I always went into every race just trying to run as fast as I possibly could. And, and the record is there. So yeah, it's pretty crazy, but you know, the Guinness world book of records, they'll give you, you know, they'll give you a world record for anything, if <laughs> you know, do something long enough. Oh man. I love it. I love it. All right. So we, we just chatted about the fact this is 40 years this year since that incredible duel in the sun has you, you said you remember it like it was yesterday. Has your perspective on it changed over the years? Did you, did you immediately feel this way? And then 10 years later that way. And then now as we look back on it, 40 years later, you're like, you know what? I, I just have a different outlook on what happened that day or the way I took that thing on. No, you know, I, I look at it now, 40 years later and really nothing's really changed. I, I, I still remember coming across that finish line and looking up at the, I, I could, I happened to look up at the clock and it was still reading 208 something. And half of me had never been so happy and excited about anything in my life. And the other half of me had never been so disappointed. I'm thinking, I just ran a 208 marathon, but I got second. And I remember getting back to my hotel eventually, and I'm soaking in the tub, you know, trying to get rid of my aches and pains. And I thought, what could I have done differently? So I closed my eyes and in my mind, I went back to the little town of Hopkinton at the start of the race and basically retraced every step of, of every mile from Hopkinton to downtown Boston to the finish line of what I could have done differently. And when I got all done doing that, I was smiling from ear to ear because absolutely nothing. I mean, I gave it my very, very best. And at the end of the day, whatever it is you do, when you give it your very, very best, how can you be disappointed in that? Would I love to say I was one time the champion of the Boston Marathon? Absolutely. But I tell you, I don't think there's anybody in sports that's got more bang for their buck for a second place than I have. So I, uh, it's been fun. I, I get asked about it all the time, and I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it because it brings back such good memories. Now, if I remember correctly, the starting line played out a nightmare that we have all had in a marathon leading up. You were stuck behind however many people ran in 82 and you had to get up to the front where the elites start and anyone who's run Boston, I've had a chance to do it three times. Anyone who's run run Boston knows that is a mass of humanity and they're stuck and they're not moving. And I mean, talk about endorphins and stress. Walk us through those moments. I just, when I read that, I just thought, Oh my word, are you kidding? I know Brad, I I, I panicked. My, my coach, Bill Squires, had gone and he was from the Boston area. He'd gone up a few days before and just started knocking on doors to find a place for me to just hide out. Back then, they didn't take you to a nice right, place right, right. for the elite athletes no or anything like that. You yeah, know, yeah. yeah, no, nothing like that. And so he found this little old lady that had an extra bedroom, and she let me stay there. And so I'm lying in the, I'm lying upstairs in a bedroom, drinking lots of water, and and I thought, well, I better get you know, go and get warmed up. Well, I didn't realize that where her house was, was on the back end of the marathon. Now, back then, it's not like it is today, but there were almost 7,000 runners, which was a lot of runners back then. And I am, I am, there's this wall in front of me and I am panicking. I'm thinking, I've never trained so hard for a race in my life. And now am I even going to get to the start and I can get along with a grizzly bear and I'm very calm, but I I start panicking and I'm, you know, I'm I'm trying to get people out of my way and I never tried to use my name to help anything, but I did that day. I go, people, please. (laughs) I said, my name is Dick Beardsley. I got a chance to win this thing. And and it was like the parting of the Red Sea. It just like people just opened up and I got right to the front of the, of, uh, of the starting area just in the nick of time. But, oh, yeah, that's something you don't want to do on any race, but especially Boston. Oh, my gosh. I wish that were on video. <laughs> that, that's amazing. Now, you, you mentioned as we were getting started, you said, hey, Brett, I'm an open book. I do want to talk to you about a few things because with our audience, health, wellness, performance, I think it could really be helpful to folks. Between yes. 89 and 95, you were involved in several serious accidents that required pain medication and eventually led 
to being arrested for forging prescriptions. You've turned that into a huge positive to help other people. But could you walk us through that part of the journey and, and help us understand and, and where you've come from that time? Absolutely, Brad. So in, after I retired from competitive uh, racing and training, I moved back to my Minnesota dairy farm. And my whole goal in life was, you know, to milk a bunch of cows, raise a bunch of kids. I, I've been a fishing guide since I was 12 years old and do that. And, and then on November 13th of 1989, I, um, I got in a bad farming accident. I got wrapped up in a piece of machinery. And it, it I mean, it Broke all my ribs on my right side, punctured a lung, broken arm, had my left leg almost torn off and head contusions. And I was in the hospital for many, many weeks and multiple surgeries. And but I recovered from that. And and then about two years later, I got in a bad car accident. A person ran a stop sign Mm. on a a country road and, and totaled my car and I broke my back. And so I'm back in the hospital with more surgeries and I got hit by a truck. After I recovered from that, running in Fargo, North Dakota, and back in the hospital, more surgery. And then I was hiking by Lake Bemidji State Park by where I live with my little boy, Andy, at the time. And and uh, the ground broke away up on this very high peak, and, and I fell off a cliff. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And I don't use this as an excuse, but I, I, uh, I was on a lot of pain medication sure, sure. for a long time. And... I, uh, I got addicted to it. And when, you know, when doctor, when my doctor wouldn't give me any more, I, back then, I guess they called it doctor shopping. I'd go to another doctor and then he'd give me some. And then when he wouldn't give me more, I'd go to another. Well, thank the good Lord. That's literally impossible to do now because whether I get a prescription filled in Bemidji, Minnesota or New York city, it pops up on a computer (laughs) and that's a good thing. And then when I couldn't, you know, get any more doctors, you know, I, I can't even imagine thinking about it, let alone actually did, but that's how powerful these gosh dang things are. I mean, I'd never been in any trouble in my life. I didn't smoke, didn't drink, never done any illicit drugs. I'd never stolen a piece of bubble gum. And I started to forge a doctor's name on, pres- on, on prescriptions. And um, I knew, I knew, I could go to prison. I knew I could lose everything that I'd ever worked for in my life. But at the time, all that mattered was to get the drugs, take the drugs and make sure I didn't get caught. And thankfully, uh, before I died, I, uh, on September 30th of 1996, I got caught and I knew I was in a lot of trouble, but I was so thankful and blessed that I was still alive. And I knew <clears throat> I knew the only chance I had, if there was any chance at all to get better, was to be 100% truthful, take responsibility. And that's what I did. And, and um, you know, I was given probation and I got into a treatment program right away. And and um, God willing, coming up on February 12th, it'll be 25 years. So, wow. um, but I, I wouldn't, I would not wish an addiction on my worst enemy. It, it, what I had to go through and what I put my family through and then going through the withdrawals, even in even in a hospital, it, it was so brutal. It, it, it's hard to almost explain. Well, and let's run down that path a little bit, because I think a lot of folks that have not had a family member or a friend or themselves go down that path, think, oh, come on, just pull You know, you're not disciplined enough. You're not what. And we're talking Dick Beardsley. If you've read the book, folks, you know this guy was like the most focused, disciplined. <laughs> you, you had, I did my PhD in mental toughness. You represented all the things that we discovered. I mean, you, you, you look up discipline and consistency and follow up in the dictionary, and there's your, your picture right there next to it. <laughs> and yet, you went through this addiction process. Can you, can you help those folks? Uh, can you help us all understand a little bit? it's not just discipline. It's not something you can just, it's so powerful. Can you, can you help us understand that a little bit more? Yeah, it, it, it is so powerful. And I was, you know, I, 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 as I look back, I probably have an addictive personality sure. and that can be good if you harness it. I mean, you know, I live in Northern Minnesota and, and even now I still run every day. I'm slower in molasses in January, but even back in my, <laughs> my training day, you know, heavy training days. I mean, I I've run many days now and many days back then when it was minus 40 degrees, actual temperature, and you just get focused 
and you don't miss a run. And I, even today, I don't miss a run. I mean, I, I, I get out there because I love doing it. And then when I when I got hooked on these med- these opioids, you know, when I was using them, they helped for what they were supposed to be. And then as you get better, then you don't need them as much. But, you know, I kind of liked how they made me feel. Okay. And then I got to the point where, I mean, I... I I got to the point by August of 1996, I was taking upwards of 80 pills a day mm. of Percocet, Demerol, and, uh, oh, um, I can't think. It's like Xanax. Uh, I can't think of the name of that okay. other drug, but it's like 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 a Xanax, you know. And, um, I mean, it's like when I do something, I either do it. <laughs> all in to all in or not at all. And it was, it was kind of like that with some gosh dang painkillers, man, if I'm going to, I may as well take them as much as I can, but you know how I survived. I mean, the good Lord obviously looked out for me. I've got a very high metabolism, which helped a lot because it kind of processed those pills. But I remember when they, when I got caught that day, and uh, I had to meet with federal drug agents because I was writing myself so many prescriptions. They thought I was like dealing them. Wow. And when I told when they told me that I started blubbering like a little baby because I mean, not one pill that I give or sell to anybody. I mean, I was too selfish. I, if I got them, I took them. But, they, you know, after meeting with them, they took me right to the hospital in Fargo, North Dakota. And right away they did blood work. And they, they were amazed at how, the amount of medication I was taking how functional all like kidneys, liver, all that stuff. And they said it was because I've got such a high metabolism. Even today, I'm I'll be 66 years old in a month. And, and I weigh the same as I did back Mm -hmm. in high school, maybe even a little bit less. So that was a blessing for sure. Wow. Wow. Uh, Okay. You mentioned you've been chemical free since February 12th, 1997. Is there any remote comparison between that battle and what it took to be a successful marathoner, because that is, that is a, it's a rough journey. The marathon's a rough journey. Obviously it's compressed versus 25 years, but can you make any ties between those two? Well, you know, it's training for a marathon at the level I was fortunate to run at comparing to go through the addiction and getting clean. The marathon training was like a walk in the park. Mm. It really was. I mean, as hard as that was, uh, going through an addiction and and getting in recovery and staying in recovery. I mean, I have to be on the watch every single day. And Mm. I've had, even uh, now I've had, yeah, I've had two total knee replacements in the last, since 2009. And so for a short period of time, I had to be on some narcotic pain medication just to deal with the surgery and then the the rehabbing so you can get to where you can straighten and bend your leg again. And that was brutal. But this time there was a plan. And my my wife, Jill, came to every all my doctor's appointments and made sure that the doctor knew about my past. And I remember the first time I went in for a knee replacement and we had to meet with the surgeon and I go, hon, I go, don't tell him about the past. I go. She go, oh no, they know about the past. I go, I go, hun, they probably would just tie me down on the table and not even knock me out and just start cutting into my leg. She goes, they're not gonna do that. And so we told the doctor, and he said, Dick, he says, you know, I appreciate your openness. He goes, we'll, you're not, we will not let you get addicted. You're gonna have to be on some narcotics for a short period of time. So, so we had a plan with the doctor, and then when I got home from the hospital, we. Um, if I needed a refill, only my wife, Jill, could call for mm. a refill. Okay. Only she, we, and we talked to our pharmacist, only she could go to the pharmacy and pick them up. And only she could dispense them to me. I had no idea where they were. And people say to me, even, yeah, they go, you mean to tell me that you couldn't have done that on your own? I said, I probably could have. But I can't 100% guarantee that I could. If I if I had a you know a, a, a jar full of those pills, I I honestly don't know if I could just take 
the recommended amount that they they want you to take without taking more and that's a that kind of keeps you on that like wow that that's 25 years later i mean that's how powerful mm. it is okay. so i just always got to be on the watch so you know with marathon training like now you know i run every day but you know i just go out and run i i don't train anymore i run every day and like i said i'm slower in molasses in january <laughs> but I still love doing it, you know? And that's, that's the neat thing about this sport of running is if you, if you choose, you can do this for as long as you want to do it. And I remember when I retired from that competitive elite running, you know, back then and people, I remember a lot of people telling me, Oh, you'll quit running now, or you'll never run another race again because you'll be so disappointed never being able to get back to that level. That never, and and for me, that never, ever bothered me. But I know a number of the guys I used to compete against, they they quit running and they haven't run another step since because of that. And and I thought, oh, they're missing out on so much because I get so much enjoyment out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, actually, describe some of your training because I'm thinking back and this is, testing my memory here, but I think in the early eighties, it was not uncommon to be running 120, 140 miles a week. Uh, I remember your quad tapping thing that you would do <laughs> X number of times. And, and I was thinking, I was just down at a conference last week and the physical therapists are now selling all these little things that go. Da, 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 da. So I think you and your coach were about 40 years ahead of the curve on that one too, but just walk us through what was training like at the elite level in the early eighties. Yeah. So, so back then I, I, I would have a period from December, January, February, March, right. Average about 140 miles a week. And it was mainly going out and doing just long, hard runs. And once a week, because of where I live, I would try to find a, a, a drier type of pavement. I do a little fart lick or something mm-hmm. like that. And then when I got to March, end of March, when the weather would start to break a little bit, roads kind of got rid of the snow and whatnot, I would drop the mileage down to maybe 120 to 130, but then the intensity yeah. would start to pick up. And so a typical a typical week for me, every Sunday, I would do a 22 to 24-mile run. And it wasn't just going out and getting a run in. I mean, I would take everything that Coach Squires, my coach – who was out of Boston and I was here in Minnesota would, I would take everything I did those previous six days, incorporate them into a 22 to 24 mile run. And I mean, it was hammer city. And I mean, there were many times I remember before I ran my uh, 209 at grandma's marathon in 1981, 11 days before coach Squires had me go out and do a, a, a 23 mile, a, no 24 mile, long run and he wanted me to run uh like five miles the first five miles and at five minute pace then back off to 520 then five and, and then the last you know mile he wanted it like under 440 so i was flying let's just say this by the time i got done if i would have gone for two more miles and i felt great i would have run like 211 in a practice that day so i knew <laughs> so- i was ready yeah. And, but, and I remember I was so excited when I got done. And I remember that night I called coach Squires on the phone and I was telling him about my workout. He just started screaming at me on the phone. If he could have put his hands through that phone and grab me by the neck and he's screaming at me. And then all of a sudden he's going, Dickie, just calm down. And I'm, and I'm thinking me calm down. Coach. <laughs> well, you know, you know what he thought? He thought you I, left, it, out I left there. it there that day. Yeah. And thankfully I didn't. But, um, but so, so Sundays were, was a long 22 to 24 miler, everything mixed in, in that run. So it went by very quick because you're always changing something up. And then I'd always do a three mile easy jog in the afternoon on a, on a, out in the woods or on a, on a golf course or something just to kind of get ready for the next day. And the next day would be, you know, a couple of runs, you know, probably put in a a 10 miler in the morning and a six to eight miler in the afternoon. Tuesday would be some kind of a, of a faster session, whether it be, you know, fart. Like I did a lot of, I, I really went to the track. I, you know, cause I was a road runner. And so I did most of my speed work 
in the form of Fort Lick out on the roads because, you know, you're going up and down and things like that. And, and just real quick for our yeah, listeners who aren't familiar with Fart Lick, it, it just means speed play. And it, it's what Dick's describing that you're not on the track. You're maybe on the road and you're picking out a, a telephone pole or a two minute period right. or, you know, I'm going to do this for four minutes or whatever. So Fart Lick is speed play, but it's not with a track. It's it's. It's on the road generally. So I'm sorry, keep going. I just want to make sure people knew what that no, word was. But no, and I should have explained that, Brad, because that's exactly what it is. And then um, I always did two runs a day. And then Wednesday would be kind of a medium long run, 12 to 16 miles. And, you know, I look back and, you know, I I made some mistakes. I mean, I even on my easy runs, I thought if I wasn't out the door at some six minute pace, I'm not. I'm wasting my time. And I look back now, if any mistake I made, it was that on those easier days, I didn't run easy enough. Right. And but uh, we didn't so know that back then. The medium. No, exactly. Right. That's exactly right. And then Thursday again would be some kind of more intensity speed play, something like that. Friday was, was kind of an easier day. And a lot of times back then, many of us, we were running a race every week nice. and I would run all kinds of, you know, 10 Ks, uh, 10 milers. And it, they would just be, I, I, I rarely tapered for them because it was part of my, right. of, of my training schedule. And, um, and I, I don't care what you do on the track and simulation. There's nothing like getting in a real race and bumping elbows with people. And there's something even to this day, when I pin a number on my, yeah. on my, the front of my yeah. singlet, I, I mean, I like in the winter now I'm running like 11, 12 minute miles. Honest to gosh. And, and when it's not all snowy, I run probably, you know, like 10 minute miles, something like that. But I get invited to some races to speak at and I'll jump in a half marathon. And yet I can run about a minute and a half to two minutes faster yeah. in a race. And yeah. it feels easier. Yeah. It's just something that's magic about pinning that number on. And then, um, so I would do a, usually a race or if not a race, some kind of a harder session on Saturday and, and, uh, and then boom, uh, that back to that long run, hard run Sunday. And even if I ran a race on Saturday, I never, I I was still out hammering that on that Sunday long run. And I look back again, it's like, golly, I was really beating myself up, you know, but you know, you, I guess that's one thing I learned that I, I, if I could have done anything different was to have just taken some of those days and just run easy. Yeah. And I never took a day off yeah. unless I absolutely had to because I maybe I got sick or I got, you know, got dinged up a little bit, had to take a day off or whatever. But otherwise, two days or twice a day, seven days a week. Wow. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> have, have you? Tuned in to Kipchoge's work with Nike on that two-hour project. Have you, have you been following that that came to a, a forefront the last, what, three years or so? Yeah. I mean, it, the, first off, the guy is like uh, Tom Brady in football. He is. He's the GOAT. He, he, he really is. There's no question. And I, I've never met him, but he seems like such a wonderful person. He's always had a smile on his face. Always. And like in the Olympics last summer, I mean – he just kind of sat there when he decided, okay, there's, <laughs> it's time to go. I'm he, done. Here we go. He, he's he, yeah. He's amazing. And I watched that race when he broke two hours and, you know, and I, I heard from a lot of people, well, yeah, but he had everything sure, set sure. up for him, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he did. But you know what? He still had to put one foot in front of the other. At you know, 437 pace. Yeah, that that just blows me away. You know, when, when Alberto and I ran, he ran 208.51, I ran 208.53. We were, that was the first time two men had ever gone under two hours and nine minutes in the same marathon. And I look back now at like what all these guys are running, you know, I mean, to win a major now, you got to run 203 at least. I mean, we'd have been like a mile and a half behind. It's just, it just, it just blows me away. Now, I, I think, you know, this whole shoe issue that's out there now. Sure, sure. That definitely, I, I tell you, as I've been with the New Balance Shoe Company since 1979, I'm like a, I'm like their their Walmart greeter now. You know, I go out and do, <laughs> I'm like an ambassador for them. But they sent me a pair of the. Um, 
of those uh, shoes with the yeah, with the carbon them. plate, right? You get carbon plates. I'm telling you, if that, it's amazing, it is you, you just walking on them. Yeah. I mean, and when you run on them, they are definitely pushing you forward. Even if my old gimpy stride that I have now, they're amazing. So not to take anything away from the athletes because, you know, the training's so much better now and the nutrition and everything. But Kipchoge, I mean, when he did, when he broke that, and it looked like he could have kept on running. I mean, honest to gosh, it's just amazing. It really is. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? I mean, I remember it was just a few years ago, people say there's no way anybody could ever possibly run under two hours yeah. and yet he did it yeah. amazing yeah yeah it's fun to hear the gals are running now yeah yeah they're 214 getting... world record that's just yeah. crazy yeah yeah it, it, wow. it is truly amazing uh you had a fun tweet <laughs> recently where you said prove yourself to yourself not others is is that a lesson you've learned the hard way over your lifetime or has that always been you it's pretty much always been me you know i've never I've, I've never tried to go out like in running say, and, Oh, I got to do this for my coach or I got to do this for my family. You know, it's like, I'm just going to go out and, and, and do the best I can. And, and if anybody's going to be disappointed, it's going to be me. But like I said earlier in the podcast, if I know that that day I gave it my best, you know, there's some days you're just kind of off. I'll never forget the, I, I missed 84 Olympic trials because I blew up my Achilles tendon, couldn't run for a couple of years and they rebuilt it twice. Cause I snapped it again. And uh, so I thought I'm going to give it one last shot for 1988. So I remember going out to uh, oh, Hoboken, New Jersey. It was right on the other side of New York city, the 88 Olympic tr- marathon trials. I had bib number one and I, and it, it was in pretty good shape. I thought, and with about at about five miles in, I just started falling off the back end of the of the lead pack. And I, I felt like I was dragging a plow and we were running. We were like five minute pace, maybe just a tad faster. And I remember Greg Meyer and Randy Thomas dropped back to me and they go, Beards, come on, come on. I go, guys, I said, I'm doing the best I can. I said, but don't let me mess up your race. So they got back up there. And as each mile went, it got to the point where I, I, I couldn't see him anymore, but I was, I was going to finish that race. And my goal going into that race was I'm either going to make the Olympic team or this is my last marathon as an elite runner. Mm. And, and, and if, but I, and my, and I was, if I had to crawl on my hands and knees, I was going to finish this. And I, I remember getting to the 23 mile mark. There was an aid station there and they had a, a big sound system going and they had this, the local radio station on or whoever that was covering the race. And they were interviewing the three finishers that made the Olympic team. And I still had three miles to go. Wow. But when I crossed the finish line, seriously, I had a, I, I was smiling from ear to ear because Brad, honestly, I, I knew that was the end of my elite running career. And but never in my wildest dreams did I ever think running would ever take me to where it did. Mm. I mean, I never made it to the state meet in Minnesota in cross country or track. And now, you know, I go to a little college and now here, you know, and so I was, I was smiling from ear to ear and uh, I have, I look back, the only thing, and it's not a regret, but the only thing I really wish that I could have been able to do. And because it, I get choked up because it would have been such an honor to have that USA across my Jersey and people say, well, yeah, but you, you know, you ran so much over internationally. Anyhow, you, you represented the U S in that way. And I said, well, yeah, but it's not the same as wearing a, a uniform that has USA on it. That would have been a, that, that would have been, that would have put the, you know, the, the cherry on top of the, of the pie. But uh, it never happened. But um, no, I, I I mean, if you would have ever asked me if I would, if my running would have ever gone this far, I would have thought they were, you were crazy. So it gives everybody, it gives those young kids that maybe aren't real good. Maybe it gives them a little glimmer of hope to, to hang in there and you never know where it might take you. Okay. So I, I love that. I want to come back to what you've said a few times about, 
if you give it your best, then you're good. How, how do you know? Like, do we ever give it our best? Do we, isn't there always a little something better I could have done in my marriage, in my work, in my, or, or like, what's your perspective on that? My wife and I talk about this all the time. It, it, is it the best I know how to do with where I'm at at this? Like, I don't know. Just develop that out for us a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's a really good question. It's a hard one to answer because you, you just kind of know, you know, at the end of the day, like now at the end of the day, if I know that, you know, I was able to, to help my wife Jill with some things and help somebody else with something and, and get some of the other things done. And maybe I didn't get everything I wanted to get done today. And I, but at the end of the day, I look at it that, well, you know, I did the best I could for today and tomorrow's another day and, and um, we'll tackle that. And, and that perspective, I don't know. I've, I've had that as long as I can remember and where my wife, Jill, she, she can kind of get upset with herself. She makes, she likes lists. And if she doesn't get done with her list at the end of the day, she's like, she's discouraged. Uh, and, I, and I'm the one that goes, I'm with you, Jill. I'm with you, Jill. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot of people are, and, and I get to the end of the day and, and I go, well, I got most of the things done and I'm happy with that. I just ran out of time and tomorrow's a new day. And, 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 uh, I'll, I'll get things, I'll work on it tomorrow. And if I don't get it all done tomorrow, well, then I'll work on it the next day. And I've always taken that perspective. And, and maybe, maybe it's because of, maybe it started happening later when I, you know, those accidents and the, the hospitalizations and the surgeries and, and, you know, almost not being around anymore. It, it, it gives you a different perspective that life's too short. Mm have everything on a list and be upset with yourself. You don't get it all done in one day, you know, you know, enjoy the day that you're in and, you know, nobody ever lived a day longer worrying about tomorrow and just, you know, do what you have to do today to the best of your ability. At the end of the day, when, before you put your head down on the pillow, look back and say, Hey, I did my very best today. And I've always had that for as long as I can remember. And I, I mean, it works for me. It might not work for, it wouldn't work for my wife, Jill, but it works for me. And, well, well, uh, but I, 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 I think you're onto something there. I think there's a lot of wisdom, what you just said with, you're talking about living our best, not checking the most things off. And I, I think there's a subtle, but important distinction there of you're saying, did I live the best day I could today. That's different than was I the best robot that I could be today? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. And I, I and I, and I, I tell you what, I think what really, really brought that into perspective for me. And, it, and, and I really live by that even more now than ever before. I lost my son, Andy, six years ago, mm. and uh, he was a, a, a an, an army veteran of the Iraqi war, and uh, he was a gunner on Black Hawk helicopters, and he was there for about a year and a half and saw some things, had to do some things that were very unpleasant, and when he got back, he uh, he suffered from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and six years ago, my son, Andy, took his life. Wow. And, um, you know, we've talked about, you know, how hard it was for the training for the, you know, back in my elite days and then the addiction and recovering from all the surgeries and stuff. And as hard as those things were, uh, losing a child, there is nothing, there's nothing apparent a person can go through worse than that. You know, Andy was supposed to bury me, not me bury him. And, and, um, and it would be easy to just wallow in my, in sorrow and, and whatnot. But I, that would, that would be the last thing my son, Andy would want me to do. And um, so I try to live every day to the fullest, knowing that I don't know if nobody's guaranteeing you're going to be here tomorrow. And so I try to live it to the, best of my 
to my ability and enjoy things. And when things don't go right, you know, okay, it's one of those days, but you know, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. And, and, uh, and what leaves me with peace and joy about Andy being gone is knowing that someday again, I will be able to give him a big hug. And that um, that's comforting and gives me much peace with that. So, um, Oof, sorry about that. Didn't need to. No, no. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about. Like that, but no, that that's that that's. Uh, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine. I can't imagine, and that's exactly what we're talking about. This best doesn't mean more. It's best in right. the full perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right. So your partner in crime in the book or your big competitor, Alberto, <laughs> he's made a few questionable decisions as a coach over the past decade and potentially more. Were yes, you surprised by, as you saw the news about him come out, were you surprised or were those maybe just an extension of some decisions potentially he was making as an athlete all along? As I read about some of the workouts that John describes that he would go out and, you know, run the mile and then set the 10 K record and then run the marathon. I, I I can't help. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I can't help, but think was he ahead of the curve on maybe some questionable things that would allow him to recover like that? Because those things were available in the eighties. Were you surprised by the news? Yes, what, what's yes your perspective? they were. Well, I, I was, you know, Alberto and I, um, over the years after that race had become quite good friends, you know, I mean, right after the race, we were both young bucks at the sure, time, sure. you know, he said some things in the, in the media and I did too. We probably shouldn't have known we're going to have to face each other someday. And, <laughs> and, but over the years, you know, we've become good friends. And, and um, I mean, there was, there was rumors that some of those athletes that ran for that particular group back then, you know, were, kind of maybe perhaps using some things that they shouldn't have been using, but then, you know, back then there wasn't the testing and, you, you know, and, and it's easy to say something. And and then when, when things started happening with, you know, a few years ago with his athletes and he got banned from the world championships and a four-year ban. And I, I, I remember hearing it right away. And because I had the, the BBC call me and wanted me to get my, perspective on it. And I, I wasn't going to comment because I didn't know the facts sure. or anything. And, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if Alberto, cause he was an intense athlete and he was always looking for an edge for himself. And then for his athletes, I, I, I tend to not believe that he would do anything that was illegal for him or the athletes, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if he pushed it right to the edge. And maybe there's that little bit of a gray area because that's the kind of person he is and was. He, he was just looking to try to, you know, just be a little bit better than he is or was and or his athletes were. And um, but then, as you know, as you hear more and more things coming out now. You, you don't know who to believe. And I and I feel for him. I mean, I you know, I went through that media crunch back when I got addicted to the painkillers and it made news all over the country. And it, it's hard to deal with that, sure. you know, cause everybody wants to know what's going on. And, and not only is it hard on, on that person, but their family, sure. you know, they're kind of in the, the scrub of it all too. So, you know, I, I, I want to believe that it was, he just kind of pushed it maybe a little bit too far. And, uh, but it, it Who's to say? I, you know, I get Alberto's the only one that knows that for for sure. Right, right, right. All right, we yeah. are we are releasing this episode on Patriots Day, twenty twenty two, which every runner out there knows is Boston Marathon Day. Any unconventional tips oh. for all the runners that are listening to enhance their training or racing? You've been at the elite of the elite. You still hang with the some of the runners. I'm sure you chat with them. You're following Kip Kipchoge's work. Uh, any 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 tips that maybe people haven't heard before? Well, they probably heard this one, Brad. It's, it's hard to to give a tip on marathoning now that hasn't been out there. There's yeah. so much out yeah, there yeah. with the social media now. But 
you know, if, you know, there's still a lot of people that have never run a marathon, but are, are wanting to, and are probably going to be running some this year. And like, I, uh, like I tell people, if you think you're going out slow enough at the start, you're probably going too fast because you know what it's like, Brad, well, you've for, run it before you're jacked up. Yeah. You're, you know, you've tapered down, you've got all this extra energy when well, you're going downhill that first mile. mile. Oh yeah. Oh, I boss it, especially. Yeah. And you know, and you look at your watch you're thinking, man, I'm a minute <laughs> ahead of what I should be, but I feel like a million bucks. I guess I'm in better shape than I thought. Oh, no, you're not. No, <laughs> and, and, and no, you're not. And Boston can eat you up. And everybody talks about those that infamous four mile stretch of hills from 17 to 21 with the big one, a heartbreak hill. It's not the uphills that get you at Boston. It's the downhills. Yep. That's why back in the day when I was training for Boston, I'd hammer my quads with my fist, you know, 1500 to a couple thousand times a day to try to toughen them up. And if I can recommend anything for people that are going to run Boston and you still got time is practice, get your body used to that downhill pounding. Like when I was getting ready for Boston, you know, how most people do a hill workout. They run hard up the hill mm-hmm. and then kind of jog back down. Mm-hmm. I did it just the opposite. That's perfect. I jogged up the hill and hammered, down to get my legs used to that pounding. And if you can do that, you're going to be way ahead of the curve. That's for sure. That's brilliant. It makes perfect sense. I'm my background. I'm a physical therapist. That makes incredible sense in terms of the eccentric contractions. (laughs) I mean, that is, that's great advice, folks. You you take that one to the bank. Uh, You, you now run a fishing guide business. You're a motivational speaker and everyone listening to this is like, Oh my gosh, this guy's motivating. So good choice on that. I've never been much of a fisherman. Could you combine your two current occupations and motivate me to want to fish? Let's try this out a little bit. Okay. So Brad, if, um, if you came to, to my home here in Bemidji, Minnesota in the winter, we call it Bermidji because <laughs> it get, I mean, last week we had, we had two days in a row when it was minus 40 degrees oh, actual temperature. And we got three feet of ice out on the lake. I'm looking at right now. Um, you would, Bemidji. We have over 400 lakes within 20 miles of town, wow. and we're in the in, right on the on the edge of the Chippewa National Forest. It's breathtaking, and fishing almost becomes and catching fish almost becomes secondary. We've got more nesting loons in this part of Minnesota than any other state in the country. And I don't know if you know, it's the Minnesota state bird and they're gorgeous. And you hear them, the the cry and the call of the loon will give you shivers. Mm -hmm. And there's many mornings when I've got people out on a little lake back in the woods and you'll hear the loons calling. And a lot of times they'll pop up right next to your boat. You might, uh, you might see a moose walking along the shoreline. Um, If you're lucky enough, and you fish late in the evening, you might hear, we have a lot of timber wolves up here. You might hear the timber wolves howling. How many people have ever heard that? And then you just might catch a gosh dang big old fish. And, you know, it's funny. I get a lot of people from big cities that have never fished much before. And I get them back on one of these little lakes back in the forest. And some of them are a little freaked out because the serenity and the quietness. Mm. They don't hear cars and airplanes. All they hear is an eagle screeching or the loons calling. And uh, it would, you would come to the, our area. And, and when you're, when the end of your rod starts bending and you feel something jerking on the end, I, I guarantee you, you will be smiling <laughs> from ear to ear and you will be hooked. You will be hooked, not just the fish. For life, honestly, it's I've been a, I've been fishing since I was two. I started my own fishing guide business when I was 12 and I've had customers, many of them for 30, 40 years. And every year when they come back, they say, Dick, you know, you're getting up there in age. When are you going to retire from being a fishing guy? And my stock answer and I, it's from the heart is I say I'm going to retire when two things happen. When I'm driving folks to the lake in my truck and I don't have butterflies in my stomach and when I'm out in the boat and somebody in my boat catches a fish and I don't get great joy from that, I said, that's when I'm going to retire. And I cannot, I cannot 
imagine that happening. As long as I can still drive, have my senses, and uh, can still feel that rod in my hand, why would I? Why would I want to retire, Brad? You know what I do? I'd be fishing. <laughs> so why why not help others get to enjoy what I get out of it? Well, everybody, I, I think he, I think he's successful on this. What do you think? I, I think I'm convinced that was that was actually pretty cool. Um, last question, Dick. This was so much fun. Any last words of wisdom for life for people listening out there and they're excited by it? They can feel your energy come through their headphones. Any other little tips that we haven't teed up here, just for life? I'm going to leave you with something that I've tried to follow all of my life. And uh, it's helped me through some some great joys in my life, and it's helped me through some great um, tragedies that have happened. And it, it's four simple things. And if you do these every day, um, at least for me, it 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 it, it really helps. And it, and these four things are this. I'll try to do it. I'm getting choked up. <laughs> Take your time. When I wake up in the morning. When I wake in the morning, I try to wake up with a smile on my face, enthusiasm in my voice, joy in my heart, and faith in my soul. And those four things have gotten me through some major things in my life. And um, hopefully they'll help our listeners if they're in, in, in a little deep with something that's going on in their lives also. Love that. Can you say those four again for us? You betcha. When I wake up in the morning, I try to wake up with a smile on my face enthusiasm in my voice, joy in my heart, and faith in my soul. Wow. Dick, thank you for sharing all four of those with us today. This was so fun. I, I, I knew it would be, I think it would be good. Uh, you know, I loved your book, the book so much, but this was just fun. It's like talking to an old friend and man, you got me fired up and I'm the one that usually fires everybody else up. So great uh, listen, job. I, I, I can sit here and chat with you all day long. So this, I feel like, yeah, like I, I found an old friend here. So thank you so much for having me on. I, it's been really a pleasure. I love books, but I almost never read them twice. Dick's story in Duel in the Sun is one of the exceptions. I'd always, always take it with me to read in the days leading up to the Hawaii Ironman World Championship to provide that extra boost. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Thanks for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. And thank you so much for sharing it with others. We don't do any advertising. It is growing only thanks to you passing it along. So we really, really appreciate it. Next week's episode, it's going to be a little different. I, I turned 56 that week and I thought it might be interesting. We'll, we'll find out for, for me to pull back the curtain on my own health and wellness. I'll, I'll be sharing details of my most recent blood work, some other tests, as well as the strategies, routines, that kind of stuff that I've been utilizing across the spectrum of health, wellness, and performance. And I'm hoping maybe it'll provide you with a few ideas for your own life. I've never done this before, so we'll see how it goes. You can let me know. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career at results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or you can tap into additional health, wellness, and performance resources on the website, catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now it's time to be a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I'll speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.